All right, you can turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19 this morning. Title of our message is, Can I Be Sure? And uh, that is a question that every, every believer ought to know the answer to and to give it away from the beginning. In terms of our salvation, the answer is yes, we can be we can be sure, and hopefully we will all walk away with some uh, passages of the Bible that we can go to to reassure ourselves of our salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. The title did not start out this way. As I got into this passage, I was thinking that, well, this is probably going to be the last week in Revelation. But as uh, as uh, got into studying more about uh, verses 18 and 19, it became very evident that in the world in which we are living in today, we need, uh, we need some teaching in this, in this regard, or not, uh, we need some reminders, I guess. Probably not going to hear a whole lot that is uh, earth-shattering to you this morning about our world and, and some of the things that are going on in it in this world, but I uh, have listened to a book this past week that kind of, it's always, it's a wonderful thing when someone can put into words things that you've been thinking and aren't quite sure how to express. And this book that I recently finished uh, does exactly that and more on that later. So, title of our message today is, Can I Be Sure? Can I be sure that I am a saved person? And the, the reason that there may be a question from this passage, verses 18 and 19 of Revelation 22, it says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. And as we have been studying, particularly the tree of life and the, the holy city that is to come, we know that that is the destination of believers in Jesus Christ. That is our eternal hope. That is, uh, it is the place where we will spend eternity with God. And on a surface level, this verse seems to be, these, this passage seems to be saying that, well, there, there are certain things that I could do and lose that place, but we'll, I'm getting ahead of myself and we don't want to do that. So, uh, nevertheless, the conclusion is going to be that no, as a believer in Christ, you will not lose your place in heaven. This is where we find ourselves here in this final section, the prologue, wrapping up this book of Revelation. And obviously there are a lot of very important concepts that are contained in these verses. That's why we've been spending some number of weeks going through them uh, and taking every week as an opportunity to remind ourselves what the book of Revelation is all about. Uh, it's always wonderful when Sunday school and and the message meld together perfectly, and they kind of did today with Ezekiel concluding with the coming of the Messiah and how God will do this. 
He promised the nation of Israel as they are going through their difficulties with Babylon and Egypt and being exiled and all of these, these things 1,500 years or 2,500 years ago now. Uh, God promised that he would do this. I will set Messiah over Israel and he will rule and reign and you will enjoy a time of prosperity as you never have before. And the book of Revelation tells us the events that will lead up to God keeping his word. That is, what, that is the context of, of the book of Revelation. We have to be very sure to not take the book of Revelation out of the Bible, see it as a standalone book, and try to understand it. This is the mistake that many people make in their understanding of Revelation, their understanding of the Bible in general, and this is, you can get into all kinds of problems if you're, if you're seeing the church in the book of Revelation primarily, and you don't understand uh, what God has promised to the nation of Israel, and these kinds of concepts that come from understanding all of the Bible, not just sections of it, and understanding it as, as a whole. That's exactly what it is. The, the Bible is not a, a compilation of individual books that are, is just a, a compilation of individual holy books. No, it, it, is a, it is a telling of God's plan and purpose in the world, how this world came into existence, what God intended life to be like, and how it was ruined by man's sin and how it will be restored by God. That is essentially the story of the Bible, and the book of Revelation sums all of that up. So you cannot possibly understand the book of Revelation without understanding it. the context of, of the rest of the Bible and, and what God is telling us in this, revel, in this book of Revelation. Very similar to you cannot possibly understand who Jesus Christ is without understanding the promises that God made in the Old Testament concerning the coming of the Messiah. Now, uh, you can get into all kinds of theoretical situations. Well, can a person be saved without knowing the Old Testament? Yes, I believe they can. But you, you have to understand who Jesus Christ is and what he's going to do. And, and we get that primarily from the Old Testament uh, to understand that he is, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that God made. And here is a, a biblical chronology. Basically, we've seen this, of course, every week for quite a while. Uh, this is the story of the Bible. God created the world. He created it perfectly. He created man to enjoy it, to enjoy it with one another and to enjoy it with God in perfect fellowship Man ruined that by his sin. The rest of the Bible is telling how God is going to restore life to the way he originally created it to be. And that is primarily through the Messiah coming into the world, dying for sins as a sacrifice, and then uh, coming again and establishing his kingdom upon the earth. And obviously there are a lot of things to happen in between them. Uh, in between those two advents of Christ, one of which is the church age, which you and I are living in. 
which will end with the rapture of the church and then the events that we find in the book of Revelation, the, the events that the book of Revelation is largely about, the tribulation period, chapter 6 through 19, that culminate with the coming of Jesus Christ to establish a 1,000-year kingdom upon the earth, Revelation 20 says it six times, 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years. God's trying to tell us that there's going to be a 1,000-year kingdom on the earth after Jesus comes again. And then we move into the eternal state after sin is finally and fully judged at the great white throne judgment. And this time is near. The time for these events to take place is near. The time for these events to take place was near back, back here. When John wrote the book of Revelation in the first century, they could still say, it can still be said that they are near because they are next on God's timeline. This, this line that we have here doesn't do a great job of showing scale. <laughs> and this parentheses, you can just sort of take that out because it's exactly that. It's a, it's a parenthetical insertion, the church is. You, st- you can get the entire story of God's timeline by removing this. That's exactly what God is going to do. We are, we're in this parentheses right now. You can remove that out of the world, which God will do. It doesn't mean it's not important. It is very important, just like uh, your reading and your, and your studies. Don't skip the parts in the parentheses. But if the writer is doing it correctly, you still get the whole thought by removing the, the parentheses. But that, that doesn't mean this information isn't important. Obviously, it is. The church is important. However, it will be removed, and then God will continue His uh, timeline for the world and his timeline of fulfilling his promises to the world that he has made through the nation of Israel. And that will uh, culminate with his coming again to the earth to establish his kingdom. But the time is near because it is next to take place. So last time we saw our free salvation in verses 16 And 17, we saw the qualifications of Jesus Christ. Uh, First off, that he is the one who delivered this message to John through the angel. The message, the book of Revelation, comes from God to Christ, to an angel, to John, to the seven churches, and by extension, of course, to us. Jesus is qualified to to do the things that he is going to do because he is the root and the descendant of David. He is the root, he is the life source, we saw, of David in his line, but he's also a descendant of David. How can he do that? He can do that because he is the God-man. He is fully God and fully man in one person, the second person of the Trinity, and he is the one who is delivering this message. And we saw also the call, the uh, calling of the Spirit and the bride, the calling of the Holy Spirit and the, the bride of, of God, essentially, the people of God who call other, 
unbelievers to Jesus Christ. Uh, that's what the call was. And, the, and the, this call goes out to every person. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Any person can answer this call. You as a believer can, uh, you don't have to feel constrained because your cousin, your uncle, he is an unbeliever. He will never believe. He's definitely, there's no chance. That is not true of any person on this planet. You can, you don't have to worry whether or not they are elect or chosen and these kinds of things. Every person can come to Christ. Let the one who, is, who wishes take the water of life without cost. It is without cost to us because Jesus Christ paid the entire cost. He freely gives it to anyone who will Take it. And that brings us to today. Can I be sure? And we'll only get to the prophecy. That's where we're going to go the rest of the rest of the uh, uh, verses in Revelation will be the promise and the provision. We'll get to those next time. But today we're only going to see the prophecy in verses 18 and 19 that says, I testify To everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in the book. So on the uh, surface, this seems kind of uh, attention getting for sure. And Jesus is speaking here. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, that I think chances are pretty good that these are not in red, these verses. But uh, Robert Thomas will uh, contend that they are, and most commentaries actually do contend that these are the words of Jesus that are continuing. In fact, all the way, uh, really from verse 16 down through the beginning of, or the end of verse 19, and then uh, Jesus, of course, continues in verse 20 speaking, but these are the words of Christ where he continues to testify uh, about this book of Revelation. And there is even some contention of whether or not this is referring to the whole Bible, or is it only to this book of Revelation Probably, uh, most likely, it's only referring to Revelation, but we can certainly take some application here and apply it to the Scriptures in general. Uh, This is a dire warning that is given here, in case you you weren't uh, paying attention. You can have the plagues of this book added on to you by uh, doing something here that we'll get into. You can lose your place in eternal life by taking away from the words of this prophecy. This ought to uh, get our attention. There are possible interpretations here uh, of what these consequences are, none, none of which are very pleasant to, to, saying, uh, to say the least. As we, as we will see, this is not talking about people losing 
their salvation uh, due to making mistakes and bad pro- uh, bad interpretation and and these kinds of things. So you're not we're not on that thin of ice, uh, uh, and it's not saying really that you can lose your salvation at all because a person cannot lose their salvation. John five twenty four tells us in perfect language, a perfect way, this is why I refer to it so often, that when a person believes, they pass from death into life with uh, using the perfect tense there. John 5.24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, present present tense there, present possessive tense. You are having it. You have it, present tense, has eternal life and does not come into judgment. And when Jesus is speaking of coming into judgment, he's talking about this judgment right here, the great white throne judgment that is described in Revelation 20, 11 through 25, or 11 through 15. Truly, truly, I say to you again, John 5, 24, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. You have it in your hand. It is, it is your possession and does not come into judgment, will not be judged at the great white throne judgment if you Believe. One single condition is mentioned there. Believing that Jesus is the Christ and that he died for your sins. Obviously, everything isn't contained in the verse that you have to believe. Uh, But you have to trust that in Christ and what he's done for you on the cross and dying for your sins and rising again, he is God in human flesh and he died for your sins and you rest completely in what he's done for you, you pass from death, passed out of death into life. Perfect tense. The has passed. It is perfect tense as a past action with ongoing consequences. So there's all kinds of, all kinds of indications there that salvation is eternal, just like it says in the Bible. That when we, when we have eternal life, we have life eternally. It is ours and it cannot be lost. It cannot be taken away because you have passed out of death into life. The perfect tense making it very clear that, that it is ongoing uh, situation that we now have by trusting in Christ. I got to get my cursor back. And so, if this passage isn't talking about believers losing their salvation, then, then what exactly is it talking about? Good question. Uh, in this idea of adding to the prophecy, if I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy, Revelation twenty-two eighteen, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. This ought to get our attention. Even though it's not saying that we can lose our salvation, it ought to remind us of the importance of a proper interpretation of 
this book and the Bible in general. If we truly believe that this is God's Word to us, then how should we treat God's Word? It isn't our Word. It's God's Word to us. He is the author. We are the ones underneath the author. We are the ones receiving the text. And so that ought to inform us as to how we ought to interpret what is being said to us. And the way that we kind of boil this down uh, is to say that we should be, can use a consistent, literal, grammatical, historical interpretation. So that's a lot of kind of technical words. Consistent just means we do it the same way throughout the Bible. When we come to prophecy, for example, we don't, oh, take off our literal hat and put on our figurative hat because it's, it's prophecy. So now we get to be the ones who make up the meaning. No, you continue just because figures of speech are used and metaphors and these kinds of things means that we're still trying to get to the intent of the author. The author is trying to tell us something, just like in Ezekiel this morning. There were parables about eagles and trees and seeds and, and all of that. We don't get to make up the interpretation of those things. We go to the scriptures and understand what God is trying to tell us because he is trying to communicate something to us. That's literal. Grammatical, we use the, the rules of language, like understanding the perfect tense and, and these kinds of, these kinds of uh, ideas of language. Know the difference between an adjective and a verb and these kinds of things that, that, that help us understand what is being communicated to us. And of course, historical, we have to understand where these books of the Bible fit into uh, God's plan. It informs our understanding of, of what is being written. For example, the book of Revelation. All of the evidence points towards the book of Revelation being written in A.D. 95 or 96 after the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Therefore, it is not a prophecy about the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So, uh, historical is very important in this uh, method to keep God as the author and we as the interpreters. We are the ones interpreting what is being given to us. And when we do this consistently throughout Revelation, the only conclusion that we can come to is that this is talking about the future. That's why we consider ourselves uh, futurists, if you will, about the book of Revelation. They are not, this book is not describing the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus didn't come in the clouds, come in the smoke of Jerusalem that some uh, who call themselves preterists will claim that Jesus, well, Jesus did come again. He just came in the smoke and you couldn't see him. Uh, that's, uh, that's an issue. Jesus hasn't returned. We are not living in the kingdom today. Uh, this is speaking of the future. But speaking of adding to the word of God, that uh, as a uh, not saying that that's what this is particularly talking about, but it is a wonderful reminder to us of 
the idea of legalism. In both, in both of, in, in this passage, in verses 18 and 19, we get two major issues that have always been the case with Christianity and, in fact, Judaism. Legalism and licentiousness. Adding to God's Word and taking away from God's Word. Both of these concepts are very dangerous and obviously to be avoided. In fact, God warned the Israelites about adding to His Word in another place of the Bible that this wording is very similar. Deuteronomy 4.2, Deuteronomy, second giving of the law, Moses giving the law to the people before they went into the promised land, if you'll remember. They wandered for 40 years after leaving Egypt. Maybe that's why God was so upset with them when they're making bargains with Egypt in, in the time of Ezekiel. Do you not remember? These are the ones that I pulled you out from. Well, uh, Moses, before they went into the land, after wandering for 40 years, he gave them a rather long sermon, the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 4.2, it says from the Lord, you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. So when we come to the New Testament and we suddenly hear about the Pharisees and this, these kinds of groups of people and them literally, you can read about them in, their, in the Talmud and other of their writings talking about putting a hedge around the law so that we don't break the law. What? Well, what is that? And then treating it as if it's God's Word, calling it the oral traditions and these kinds of things. That is adding to the Word. That is legalism. And there are, there are all kinds of examples of that within Christianity as well. Uh, people add legalistic standards to salvation. You have to... Uh, come to church every week. You have to give to the church. You have to belong to the right church. You have to do this. You have to do that. You can't commit this sin. You can't commit that sin. Or you are not a Christian. That is legalism. Uh, legalism can also be applied to the spiritual life and, and sanctification as we have seen. Uh, not just justification or the receiving of eternal life, but sanctification. In our, in our Christian life, you can also have legalistic standards. Oh, Christian, a Christian certainly can't do this or that and will do this, that, or the other, the other thing. So legalism can get us into uh, problems in a number of areas. Uh, we can also do this with prophecy. We can add to God's word in terms of prophecy. Like, for example, uh, dispensationalists uh, can fall into this trap very easily. Every time the Russian military does anything, uh, you can go on YouTube, and I assure you that you will hear uh, <laughs> videos and talks of how this is Gog and Magog. This is it. This is actually the beginning of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And watch out. Things are going to go really fast. 
uh, when, when the Russian, do you, do you remember when the Russians sent troops to Syria? And uh, that was a few years ago. Still no invasion of Israel yet, in spite of, of what we will, we will hear uh, from some. So we just need to be very careful about adding to the scriptures, adding to the prophecy. A good reminder of this can be found in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 30 and verse 6, it says, Do not add to his words, or he will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. Ooh, don't set dates for the rapture. Don't believe anyone who is setting dates for the rapture. That's a false teaching. The coming of Christ is imminent. It is unknown when it will happen. And there is no date. You cannot apply any code to the Bible. There's no hidden code in there in the original languages or any of these kinds of things that you're going to, to, to hear about setting a date for the rapture. It is unknown. It is imminent. It can happen at any time. You will be proved a liar. Every time that people are setting a date, they are proved to be a liar. Do not do that. And don't get too excited every time Putin does something with, <laughs> with the military that it's Gog and Magog. Uh, we'll just leave it at that. But notice these, that it says that these plagues which are written in this book can be added to the people who do this. And the place where we see this word plagues being used is a reference to the bowl judgments, Revelation 16, which we kind of came to the conclusion that that's describing the second half of the tribulation. And so this, this may be a possible interpretation is that people who add to the prophecy, add words to the prophecy of this book will miss the rapture They'll go through the tribulation, and then they're going to experience the judgments of the tribulation. Now, that, that's possible, but it could be uh, more likely that there will be consequences for you in this life, because after all, we're coming up on 2,000 years after John wrote these words, and the tribulation still has not come. However, that doesn't mean that God doesn't judge sin and doesn't kind of use the same consequences for sin that he will use in the tribulation period. We can see a couple examples of that in Revelation chapter 2. In verse 16, Jesus Christ says, therefore repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. There are consequences for sin in this life. Revelation 2.22, Behold, speaking of the uh, Jezebel, Behold, I will throw her on the bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. We kind of talked about that same phrase, great tribulation. Notice it doesn't say the great tribulation. It just says great tribulation. You're going to have issues in your life if you continue down this path of, of sin. There are consequences for sin, and you are going to essentially reap what you sow 
And here is another reminder that you can, if you are adding to the prophecy that is found here, you can uh, have consequences for that. And they can be very similar to what is going to be experienced by people in the bold judgments is what Christ is saying here. And just a reminder to us of how to treat God's word in the serious seriousness with which we are to do that. And notice verse 19, it says, and if anyone takes away from the words of the prophets of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. It seems to me that these consequences are even more severe than the adding to uh, the, the words of this prophecy. If we take away, we, you can lose your part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. And so we have pointed out, at least uh, on a surface level, that, that a believer cannot lose salvation and we will get to that more at the end to, to prove the point even more that a believer cannot lose their salvation. So it would seem that this is pointing towards unbelievers. Unbelievers are the ones who will engage in this sort of activity. And this is very much in keeping with the idea that the apostles are the ones who are the foundation of the church. Notice Jesus says, uh, adding to the words of this prophecy or taking away from the words of this prophecy. John is the author of this book, the human author of this book. He is an apostle and he's the one who is concluding this book. Jesus is giving credence to the idea that the apostles are the foundation for the church. Moving forward, if we'll, we'll remember our history, John is the last living apostle as he is writing this. And this is a great reminder that the scriptures are going to conclude with the apostles and their writings as they are the ones that Jesus specifically gave the admonition to to write the New Testament Scriptures. John 14, 26, he says that the Holy Spirit will be with you, 12 apostles, and, I'm, and the Holy Spirit is going to remind you of the things that have happened so that you can write them down and the world can, can have God's Word to them. Robert Thomas in his commentary on Revelation goes so far as to say that this is the termination of the gift of prophecy. And I would agree with him. Uh, any additional prophecy is really adding to Revelation. Or if you're changing something that is in the book of Revelation, you're taking away from the book of Revelation. And that's exactly what we're being warned of right here. Uh, Revelation covers the time period from John's life in 95 or 96 until the eternal state. Everything is covered between John's life and the end of time as we know it until we move into eternity. That is what is 
being spoken of here. So I personally would be very careful of people who are telling you, God told me such and such. Uh, I uh, had a vision and God told me to do this, that, or the other thing. We ought to be very careful about that. It also is a great reminder to us that, that prophecy matters. God is guarding this prophecy. The book of Revelation in particular, another indication to us of the importance of this book. Do not add to it. Do not take away from it. It has come from Jesus Christ, uh, the descendant and root of, of David. He is the one who has delivered it to John, to the churches, to us. This is important. These truths are very important to us. And in the following verses, we're going to see why, well, we're not even in this. This is about the future. We won't be here. You tell us every week ad nauseum that we're going to be uh, raptured. Before. Why does it matter? Verses 20 and 21 are why this book matters. Paul thought that it mattered as well to the Thessalonians, these future events. If you'll remember, First and Second Thessalonians are primarily about the rapture of the church and the importance of that doctrine, uh, reminded over and over that Jesus is coming for us again and admonishing the people to be godly because Christ is coming again for us at any moment. First Thessalonians 5.20 do not despise prophetic utterances. If you'll remember, uh, Paul is writing in the 60s, so about 30 years before John is writing. There still was a gift of prophecy at that point in time that people had. Uh, do not despise the prophetic utterances. Over time, that became less and less as the as the, the Bible was being uh, canonized, if you will, inspiring the Holy Spirit, inspiring men to write the Bible, as that was concluded with the book of Revelation, we don't need the, pro, the, the gift of prophecy anymore. Nevertheless, Paul tells the Thessalonians to not despise prophetic utterances because prophecy Primarily, prophecy is always, always, always tied to godly living. Looking forward to Christ coming again needs to inspire us to live for Him. And speaking of taking away from uh, the Bible or from the words of this prophecy uh, reminds me very much of licentiousness taking away from the things that God wants us to do always leads to ungodly living. 1 Thessalonians 3.11, Paul says, Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that... He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Once again, the coming of the Lord tied directly to godly living so that we are prepared for us when he comes again. Do not take away from the words of the Bible. Do not lower the uh, standards of godliness just because it isn't 
not sinning isn't a requirement for you to get into heaven doesn't mean that God isn't concerned with our sinning. He is very concerned with our sinning. As we saw last week, he wants us to be holy because he is holy. In fact, uh, that is what we are to be zealous for as believers. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. There's another one of our verses that shows very clearly who is eligible for salvation. All men, all people. Verse 12 of Titus 2, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Again, every time a prophetic event is announced, it is tied to godly living. Verse 14, who, speaking of Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you, Paul says to the pastor uh, Titus. So we ought not to take away from the words of this prophecy. Uh, because it is because prophecy is always tied to godly living, and when we when we disconnect those two, we are we're bound for trouble, without exception. So who would do this? Well, uh, I can. The Book of Revelation just told us who the people are who do what is being mentioned here. This isn't this isn't talking about. Uh, we beat up on him a lot, but uh, this isn't even talking about preterists who think this is describing uh, AD 70 and the fall of Jerusalem and that kind of thing. I will give them the benefit of the doubt and say, wow, you're just severely uh, misunderstanding the book of Revelation by having that sort of interpretation. You're using a wrong interpretive method, but we give them the benefit of the doubt. This is not describing making mistakes in interpretation, because while I believe firmly am committed and believe that we as uh, Bible church people, if you will, dispensationalists, are using the correct method of interpretation, it doesn't mean that we as fallen people always do it correctly. I think we're pretty close, but we have the right method to understand God's Word. It's not talking about mistakes in interpretation. It's talking about people literally changing the Bible. You can read about people throughout history who scratch out parts of the Bible that they don't like, take out books of the Bible that they don't like. That is what this is talking about. Adding to uh, the book, adding words to the books or to the Bible. Uh, the Book of Mormon comes to mind. Those, sorry, those people aren't. Christian. That religion is not Christian. That is a false, uh, very cult-like religion that is based on words in addition to the Scriptures. And in fact, they change the Scriptures that are, that are here in the Bible as well. 
So who is doing this? Unbelievers are doing this. The dogs that are mentioned earlier as being outside of the kingdom in Revelation 22. We saw that those are unbelievers. And in fact, I'll go so far as to say they are, they're, these are the kinds of Marxist atheists are the people who in our day and age are the ones who are taking away from the Bible and in fact, adding to the Bible. Have you noticed that Islam isn't really under attack in the world today? In spite of the fact that they are literally in Islamic countries, literally throwing homosexuals off of buildings in their countries simply because of what they engage in. Uh, But Nevertheless, they don't have the wrath of (laughs) governments coming down on them. Neither do Hindus or Buddhists or any other religion for that matter. It is biblical Christianity that is under assault and has been uh, for quite some time now. It would seem that the God of the Bible is the target of these kinds of people who are adding to and taking away from the Bible. And there is a very recent example of this that is off the charts, in fact, uh, adding and taking away from the Bible uh, that you may have seen in the news recently. Uh, Yuval Noah Harari, are you familiar with this individual? He is the, I believe he's the personal assistant of Klaus Schwab in the World Economic Forum. Uh, There's a little uh, article that came across this past week. This is from uh, CBN, Christian Broadcasting News, I believe it is, or Broadcast News, not sure. There are are many, many examples of this article. uh, And in fact, I'll read it first, or at least part of it. This is from June 16th, 2023, World Economic Forum Contributor says AI could rewrite the Bible and create correct religions. Now that is adding to the Bible or taking away from the scriptures. Article says concerns about the potential misuse of artificial intelligence or AI are escalating yet again after a prominent professor and philosopher said he believes AI could write a new Bible within just a few years. Yuval Noah Harari, known for being a contributor and speaker at the World Economic Forum, is promoting the idea that AI will be able to generate a new globally acceptable religious book. Harari's prediction is raising alarms for conservatives and Christians since the Bible is considered sacred as God's holy word to mankind. Harari explained AI's purpose in writing a new Bible during a recent forum called AI and the Future of Humanity. Quote, Here's the quote. It's the first technology ever that can create new ideas. You know, the printing press, radio, television, they broadcast. They spread the ideas created by the human brain, by the human mind, he said. Harari said AI will soon be able to invent new concepts and beliefs that are more socially acceptable than the Bible. Quote, AI can create new ideas. It can even write a new Bible he said, in order to establish unified and correct religions. Throughout history, 
Religions dreamt about having a book written by a superhuman intelligence, by a non-human entity, Harari explained. Now he believes AI will become a new type of God. Quote, in a few years, there might be religions that are actually correct. Just think about a religion whose holy book is written by an AI. Just think about it. I think you can read about it in uh, <laughs> Revelation 13. Uh, there's one place you can read about something like this happening. That could be a reality in a few years. So uh, Yuval Noah Harari, I believe he's a personal assistant to Klaus Schwab. He's very closely connected to Klaus Schwab, who is essentially the head of the World Economic Forum. He's Harari is a homosexual. He makes no bones about it, not giving away secrets. Uh, and he's, he's Jewish as well. And this is the kind of thing that we're seeing here in Revelation, adding to or taking away from the Bible. This is straight from an unbeliever. We're going to create a, a new religion with AI. And uh, somehow it's going to be... Uh, better than, than the, the Word of God given to us. This is a, a wonderful example of these kinds of people who are going against the Scriptures. And if you look up this article, by the way, or this idea of Harari saying these kinds of things, the first 10 examples that you're going to find on Google are uh, fact-checkers saying that he didn't actually say it, but he did say it. It's, you can watch the video of him saying it word for word, AI writing a new Bible that will create a correct religion that will be acceptable by people. These are the kinds of people that this is warning. Now, why, where does this hatred for God come from? For God and His Word, I mean, these you know, are they just dreaming this up, or is it, uh, or does it have some sort of foundation? Well, the fact of the matter is that th this is the inevitable result of the philosophy of people such as Karl Marx, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, and uh, Sigmund Freud. And there is a wonderful book. This is the book that I uh, have recently listened to uh, on. Uh, driving back and forth to Chicago. It's called Strange New World by Carl Truman. And if you want an in-depth treatment of this, this is a, a wonderful place to go. He also has a very scholarly book that's on the same topic. I don't know about you. That might be a little, <laughs> a little over your head. Uh, this one is uh, kind of the popular version of his scholarly work. Highly recommend reading or listening to this book. Strange New World by Carl Truman. And uh, essentially, the, the goal of these individuals, Karl Marx in particular, they start with the idea that, of course, there is no God, but where did we come from? How should we then live? And these kinds of things. They are creating, essentially, a systematic theology for a godless world, where we go to the scriptures and we create a, a systematic theology, a theology that is, uh, comes from the scriptures, 
telling us about who God is, how we came into being, who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is, getting our thoughts about the world and God from the scriptures, these people are trying to create a systematic ah theology, a, a systematic uh, philosophy for life that there is no God. Ah, theology. I sort of came up with that the other day when I was cutting the grass. Uh, and so they're, they're trying to, to uh, while we will try to create a theology or an understanding of who God is from the Scriptures and how should we then live, that's exactly what they're doing, just the opposite. There is no God. What should we think about this world and how should we then live? And I'll tell you what, in 2023, we, we see examples. How should we then live? We see examples of it all around us. And they even have a symbol that we'll, that we'll get to here shortly. Nevertheless, uh, this idea that truth is relative or that we can't know truth comes straight from Karl Marx and all of these people. There is no God. There is no standard of truth. So, so where, where does this idea of truth come from? It comes from our own brains. So what's true for me might not be true for you because you don't have the same thoughts as I do. And there is no outside standard. So your thoughts are just as valid as my thoughts are just as valid as the transgender's thoughts. Everybody's thoughts are equally uh, valid. And so since we... Uh, there are incredible consequences that come from this foundational thought that we are seeing all around us. Primarily, there is no God there is no standard of truth, so we make it up ourselves in our minds. That's Karl Marx, that's Friedrich Nietzsche, that's Sigmund Freud, all coming at it from a different viewpoint. And Sigmund Freud, speaking of what we are seeing today, what we are seeing today in the world is the logical outflow of all of this thinking coming together. Since we evolved from nothing... How does that happen? <laughs> I'm not sure how you can evolve from nothing. I understand how we could come from nothing. God could speak us into existence, but evolving from nothing makes no truth or makes no sense. Uh, and so at any rate, we'll just go from there. We evolved from nothing. There is no standard of truth. And in Freud's darkened mind, the ultimate expression of happiness, that's what it all comes down to. We all just want to be happy, right? We just want to enjoy life and it's just going to be great. And if we just follow Karl Marx, eventually we'll get to a utopia and everything will be fantastic. In Freud's darkened mind, the ultimate expression of happiness or experience of happiness is sexual. And so everything is guided by that. And so, since there's no standard of truth, there's no outside standard, you get to invent it in your own brain. So whatever you think in terms of uh, sexual preferences, identities, all of these various things, that's all valid, it's all good. In fact, the stranger your beliefs are in that regard, the more of a hero you are. 
the more of the, the brave person you are because you are just casting off everything that is around you and just being you in spite of what the world and nature tells you. So these individuals are lifted up to the ultimate examples of the superhuman. And so when we combine these ideas from Freud with Marx, Marx's idea that everything is about politics and power. He liked power. Freud liked sex. And so <laughs> Marx wants everything to be about having power. You combine those two and wow, look out you have the LGBT conglomerate that is running the national narrative in our world today. And so these are the kinds of people who are adding to and taking away from the scriptures. There's also, I have another, oh, I hit it too early, darn. You know, there's also another category down here who are the severely misguided false teachers. Uh, Jesus says, Matthew 7:15 Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves you will know them by their fruits and he goes on from there This is a picture we just so happen to have this magazine at home and I uh Suzanne was able to take a picture of it for us if anybody tries to deny that, that these things aren't true here it is. It's an actual hard copy. Uh, do they even make a hard copy magazine anymore? I don't know. August 18th, 2008. And of course, this is very old news by now. Uh, a lot has happened since 2008. Uh, and a lot has happened since Karl Marx has said the things that he said. Nevertheless, they are a firm foundation for the place where we find ourselves today. And this, of course, is is Rick Warren, and he is kind of very foundational for the modern church, the modern church growth movement, foundational for what people think church is today. He is largely responsible for. And in this article, he, by his own admission, he was a member of the Students for a Democratic Society in college. Now, who in the world is the Students for a Democratic Society. Uh, they were a, uh, a very radical group in the 1960s primarily who essentially believed in the thoughts of Marx and Freud and all of these individuals. And here is a pamphlet that I found online today for them. Uh, an introduction to the SDS. This, is, this was from 1966. Uh, notice the little symbol up here. Can you tell what that is? The raised fist that's on there. Uh, this is the group that, that Rick Warren uh, was a part of. In fact, the article says that he led an SDS march on a courthouse when he was in college. I know that you can go and find plenty of quotes from Rick Warren about that are sound, decent, and these kinds of things, but this is the foundation. This is where he is coming from, the raised fist. Here's the raised fist of the communists in the USSR. Here's the raised fist of Black Lives Matter from uh, fame a couple of years ago and still are doing their thing. Here's another one that I came across today. Uh, 
And this perfectly encapsulates what the raised fist is about, particularly that it's coming out of a cloud and raising it, raising your fist against God is exactly what that pictures and is exactly what it is doing. And this is sort of the, the foundation for uh, what Rick Warren, I personally believe, is trying to do in the church. And he had a, had a peace plan at the time that it was called that was a complete redirection of the church away from giving the gospel to going into all the world. And the, I mean, you can read about it. Literally says that we need to be sending people to churches around the world to, to teach the people how to drink, how to get their water, keep their water clean, how to grow food and these kinds of things. Taking away from the scriptures. The scriptures are very clear what missionaries ought to be doing, what we ought to be doing as the church. And it has nothing to do with digging wells and teaching people how to keep their water clean. Uh, It has to do with giving people the gospel and teaching them how to live in a way that is acceptable to the Lord. This isn't the church as evidenced by the fact that one of his uh, mentors is Peter Drucker, who has absolutely nothing to do with Christianity, but has a lot to do with running a business and how to, how to, how to be successful in that. This and churches like Hillsong and quote-unquote churches like Hillsong, that is not church. That is, those are businesses designed to, to make money and have nothing to do with the purpose of the church from the scriptures. So these are the kinds of people who are adding to and taking away from the scriptures, distorting the church and its purpose in this world. Uh, we need to understand that Jesus said he will build his church, and we are the ones who are supposed to be faithful in doing the things that he said we ought to be doing, giving the gospel to unbelievers teaching believers how to live by means of the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, and live it out together as a body of believers, uh, loving one another. So this passage is definitely not saying that we can lose our salvation. Salvation is an objective fact. It is not subjective. Have I, have I misinterpreted enough to lose my salvation? Have I taken away too many words? Have I, have I not interpreted it so much or uh, incorrectly so much that I'm going to lose my place in heaven? Oh no, I just, I'm just not even going to read it. I'm not even going to think about it. That is not what this is saying in any way, shape, or form. Salvation is an objective fact. It is based on one thing and one thing alone. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Are you believing in Him? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It, salvation, is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Romans three twenty six. Uh, uh, that Jesus is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is the one who justifies. When Jesus, when Lazarus had died and Jesus went to to raise him from the dead, he met with uh, Martha, 
on the way to raise Lazarus from the dead. Martha's visibly upset. Why didn't you come sooner? You could have kept him from dying. Jesus says, hold on. Verse 25 of John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Question mark. End of sentence. Martha says, yes, I have believed that you are the Christ. She has eternal life. She has passed from death into life. No one can take it away from her. She is assured of her salvation. She can be sure. This is an acronym that I got from J.B. Nicholson, Uplook Ministries. You can look him up. Uh, some fantastic videos. You may not agree with every jot and tittle. That's fine. This is excellent. He has the gospel wired. We can be sure because Scripture says so. The S Ensure. Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe, John 3.16. Believe, John 5.24. Believe, believe, believe. hundred times the Bible makes very clear. Scripture says so. It is based on the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It isn't based on you and what you've done. 1 John 2.2, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. You don't have to wonder whether or not Jesus died for you. He did. The Bible tells us that He did. It rests completely on Christ. As I mentioned, it doesn't rest on you. It doesn't rest on your ability to properly interpret the book of Revelation. It rests on Jesus Christ and you're trusting in what he did for you. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Nothing about your works, nothing about my works, nothing about your sin, my sin, uh, some sin that we can commit and then lose our salvation. It rests completely upon Jesus Christ. And furthermore, we can be sure because of our verse that we studied last week in depth, every single person is invited. You don't have to wonder whether or not you are invited to have salvation. You are. As a person, you are. Revelation twenty-two seventeen: the spirit and the bride say, come, let the one who hears say, come, let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Can you be sure whether or not you are saved? The answer from the scriptures is an, an emphatic yes. Yes, you can be sure. If you are trusting in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and that alone, not your works, not your parents' works, not the church that you went to. You're trusting simply in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. You can be sure that you have salvation. And then the Lord wants us to go out and live for him. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Revelation. The, the, the depths and riches of it are like a uh, never-ending well 
and we just thank you for it. We thank you for the truth of salvation through faith in Christ. We thank you that you are coming again for us. And we just pray that we would be faithful to you in the time that we still have. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.